This is the sound of turning ideas into software. This is the sound of engineering and passion. Work. Work more. Work harder. Experiment. Build. Break. And build again. Write code. Improve it. Job done. Celebrate. Insurance. Finance. Retail. Defense. Robotics. Energy. Amethyx. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting as usual from the Office of Amethyx Technologies based in Brussels City, Belgium. Today we still speak about LLMs and in particular one of the, I think, one of the most interesting interpretations of uh, large language models made by uh, François Cholet, uh, who's also the author of Keras, for those who remember Keras the um, Python library uh, that was probably one of the best APIs ever written um, back in the days when it comes to uh, deep learning and uh, uh, you know building uh, even very complex topologies um, of, net of, of neural networks uh, in the Python language. So there is a very nice introduction by uh, François Cholet uh, about uh, his personal interpretation of uh, uh, what large language models are and, and some kind of comparison with, uh, for example, databases, which <laughs> can sound very, very weird. But if you stick with me, uh, I'm going to try to explain that. And I strongly recommend the reading uh, that you will find in the show notes of this episode at datascienceathome.com uh, is the uh, original article uh, by François Cholet and also to subscribe to his newsletter. Uh, definitely worth it. Uh, to receive some of his most interesting posts. So before going to the analogy and interpretation of large language models, according to Cholet, um, he, of course, makes a very brief introduction of what is, uh, let's say, the core technology or methodology uh, when it comes to large language models uh, and, you know, language models in general, regardless of their size and the, the dimensions in terms of number of parameters. Because, you know, we have seen these things happening uh, with uh, you know NLP, natural natural language processing, and many concepts, for example, from 2013 at Google uh, by Mikolov, uh, who you know noticed, for example, uh, who in fact created uh, or invented the word to vec um, arithmetic, which is uh, indeed the um, concept of uh, word vector and therefore word arithmetic. Uh, so the way to um, compute numerically uh, words and uh, phrases and uh, paragraphs of text. So how can one uh, in fact calculate um, numerically over text? And uh, the intuition back in the days was, okay, well, we can uh, project or, or translate these words into uh, vectors, which were called word vectors indeed, um, and then operate on vectors. And this is a, you know, now it's a very normal concept, though in 2013 it was very innovative. Though, to be very honest with you, this was, you know, from the NLP literature and uh, there were many papers, there were several papers, even older than 2013, in which the concept of um, embedding, of course, was very well known to academics and researchers. Long story short, what we could do back in 2013, well, we could do things like arithmetic operations. And so uh, if you have the embedding of, for example, uh, king minus 
the embedding of man uh, plus the embedding of woman, uh, it would have given you as a result the embedding embedding of queen, <laughs> as if you could like subtract man from king plus woman, what do you get? Well, you get a queen, which is the equivalent, you know, the semantic equivalent of, um, or equivalent, no, it's a big word, it's like the semantically closest concept to this arithmetic operation, which would be very, you know, quite crazy to do on words, but due to, or thank to the uh, embedding, the word embeddings, we can actually, we could actually calculate arithmetic operations on words. After 10 years, what happened? Well, that we had large language models and 2023, around March, at least officially, uh, large language models were announced. We all know this, we started using ChatGPT and many other uh, large language models there. And not only uh, that, but you know, the concept of large models, and so billion parameter uh, models, uh, became kind of the new normal. But at the uh, core of these models, in fact, there is some kind of, uh, you know, an evolution of the word to vec of 2013. Uh, now, of course, the word to vec was incapable um, of, uh, for example, generating fluent language. Uh, they were much more limited. These were methodologies that were much more limited than the large language models that we know today. Uh, but still, uh, at the core, uh, there is the concept of the embedding and embedding tokens uh, of words or subwords or even entire uh, paragraphs or, or even entire documents, in fact, in a vector space. And that is, you know, the core concept that actually stayed even 10 years later. Now, I think there is no better way than just citing uh, François Cholet when he explains um, what is the correlation between large language models and word to vec and, uh, well, definitely, you know, we start by saying that uh, large language models were autoregressive models, at least that's what people were saying back in the days, uh, that were trained to predict the next word conditioned on the previous word sequence. And this is also something that we currently believe is happening, and I also believe that is happening, and many out there believe that is happening. So, a large language models, if it behaves as an autoregressive model, in fact, the only you know, trivial thing that it's doing is predicting the next word with a condition on the previous word sequence. And, you know, if the sequence, the previous sequence is large enough, you know, there is uh, a lot of context, there is a more complete context, um, and therefore, you know, the prediction of the next word can be more and more accurate depending on, uh, on how big that context is. But in fact, both word to vec and uh, large language models, they both rely on the same fundamental principle uh, to learn this space, you know, to learn the vector space that allows them to predict the next token or the next word given a condition, given a context. The common concept or the common uh, strength of these two relatively different methods is that tokens that appear together uh, end up close together also in the embedding space. And that's kind of the you know most important trick or consequence or whatever you want to call um, that is happening, in fact, when you train this model. So in a very large uh, text that you use for training and, and, and tuning these models, what is actually happening is that 
the tokens or the word that the words that appear together in you know in the real world let's say in the in the training uh, text uh, they also stay together or stay close uh, in the embedding space and that's very very important because if you lost that kind of correspondence well we would not be able to uh, match let's say numbers or similar numbers in you know, vector uh, vectors in fact numerical vector numerical vectors to similar semantic concepts even the dimensionality of the embedding space is quite similar the order of 10 to the power of 3 or 10 to the power of 4 kind of magic numbers obtained by trial and error in fact and they stay the same so how big the, the embedding space should be um, it really didn't grow that much because people noticed that by increasing the dimensionality of the embedding space there were not so many improvements or not consistent improvements on the accuracy of the um, next word next estimated token or word uh, but of course at the same time if you increase the dimensionality of the vector of course you have uh, you know you need much more compute power to calculate uh, all these things so as a matter of fact large language models seem to encode so-called correlated tokens in closed locations uh, and so there is a connection with uh, in fact what was already happening with word2vec or the training part of word2vec uh, and the answer of all this as uh, Cholet says uh, is self-attention so there is no better way to explain self-attention by just citing Cholet I think he did a, an amazing job explaining uh, such a relatively complex you know concept uh, especially to the people who have never heard of self-attention and self-attention is the single most important component in the transformer architecture we dedicated a, a couple of episodes at least one for sure on the transformer architectures so feel free to search it on, on google and uh, go back to listening or just listening for the first time if you never did on the uh, official website datascienceathome.com so back to the transformer architecture and uh, the concept of self-attention in fact this is a mechanism for learning a new token embedding space by linearly recombining token embeddings from some prior space in weighted combinations which give greater importance to tokens that are already closer to each other that's what Cholet says about self-attention which is I think it's one of the best summaries that I've ever read about uh, self-attention. So I can actually repeat just for the sake of making this episode self-contained enough so that you don't have to pause and search for uh, you know, additional information about self-attention. It is a mechanism for learning a new token embedding space by linearly recombining token embeddings from some prior space in weighted combinations which give greater importance to tokens that are already closer to each other and that is a beautiful example it's kind of a classic now um, you know having an input sequence the train left the station on time and so what happens is that you you know the, the self-attention mechanism would first of all convert each word into its token vector so we would have like vector of the train vector of left vector of the vector of station vector of on and vector of time uh, and we put those vectors into an n by n matrix uh, that we use to calculate the attention scores 
you know, because we want to calculate the attention score of each word against all the others. And then we, um, you know, of course, I'm oversimplified, simplifying here because the self-attention mechanism is uh, a bunch of dot products and uh, some linear algebra that I'm skipping for obvious reasons. You get to the scores for, for example, the word station, and you will immediately realize, well, you compute, we will compute, in fact, that station is uh, usually close to the word train and usually close to the word or closer to the word left, uh, which is a verb, at least in this sequence. But station and train are actually, you know, uh, almost always close to each other, at least with respect to, for example, station and and probably time also, but station and let's say there is chair, uh, station and chair or train and chair would be at a different distance, right? So when you do this exercise, what happens is that um, you would have, for example, considering the scores for station, you would immediately see that um, it has a higher score with respect to train uh, than with respect to all the other words, right? And so if you kind of uh, extrapolate these scores from the sequence and you were about to order uh, what are the, let's say, words that have the uh, highest uh, attention scores in, the, in, this, in this sequence, well, you would find train left station, uh, which gives you already a very interesting context here because the context-aware vector that you would get by, for example, uh, summing all the scores for station, well, it would give already a very interesting hint about what's going on in this sequence. Well, that a train is indeed leaving a station. Of course, we don't know any other detail uh, about that because we have just one sequence and one phrase, but imagine you had several gigabyte or even terabyte of text in which all these correspondences of words and, and contexts would you know, be scored according to the self-attention mechanism, well, you would start having uh, very interesting context-aware vectors uh, that kind of summarize very nicely whatever is going on in those sequences. So what happens is, in fact, two important things are happening here. Um, the first uh, is that the embedding spaces that this transformers topologies learn uh, are semantically continuous, okay? Which means that uh, if you move slightly in the embedding space, you are just changing slightly also um, the corresponding token by a bit. Um, and also the meaning or the semantic meaning that we humans are giving to that, let's say, bunch of words uh, is, you know, slightly changing. And so this continuous, uh, semantically continuous space is actually a very interesting property to move continuously in the numeric vector, sorry, in the embedding space, which is made of numeric vectors, and also in the world of, uh, let's say, semantics, which is the world we humans live in, and which, is, which means that you slightly change numeric parameters or, or vectors, and you slightly change the semantical uh, the semantic meaning of those vectors. So very interesting property. This is the first. The second most important property is that the embedding spaces they learn are semantically interpolative. And this is also very, very important because what does interpolative means? 
it means that you know if you take the intermediate point between any two points in the embedding space this third point in fact represents the intermediate meaning between the corresponding tokens and this is kind of a i would say a consequence of the first property of the semantically continuous i think that I think that you cannot have the second without the first, but uh, I would love to know what you think about this. Probably some purist out there can intervene with my assumption. But anyway, the semantically interpolative nature of these spaces, uh, of these vectors, in fact, is that um, you kind of cut somewhere in between two points and boom, you get uh, the semantically intermediate point as well. Now, if you think how our brain works, um, apparently um, our brain or human brains work in a very similar fashion, which is also called Hebbian learning. So essentially, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so there are these correlation relationships and semantically interpolative way of working that resemble the, uh, the human brain, and probably not only the human brain. So essentially what we do, humans, uh, is building maps of a space of information. Um, and uh, some of you who studied, for example, communication theory, uh, but also um, even at university, I remember back in my days, we were, uh, there were a few courses about uh, organizing information, mind maps. I don't know if someone is familiar with these concepts, but essentially was just enhancing that property of the brain uh, to build maps of a space of information that we use, for example, to learn fast or to remember uh, concepts better um, or to retrieve these concepts after years and years because they were kind of, you know, kind of comfortable ways of storing information in our brain and then uh, retrieve it whenever needed. Well, that's exactly what happens in the human brain very, very similar to what is happening on our GPUs when we train large language models and uh, you know, res responding to these two properties of semantically continuity and semantically interpolativeness uh, of the methodologies. Of course, the big, big improvement with respect to word to vac and carried on by large language models was the fact that it's no longer the possibility of let's say, finding a semantically similar word, but it's also to find to do something way more powerful than 10 years ago, which is, uh, for example, writing something in the style of, let's say, Shakespeare. And so you provide a, a paragraph, a, an entire document, or the description of how your day went, and, uh, uh, and you ask in, the, in your prompt, write this in the style of Shakespeare, and you would get as uh, an output, uh, you would get indeed a new poem, probably not new, but something that resembles Shakespeare's poems. Uh, so this is the power of LLMs now, that is enhancing the concept of word to vec to way bigger dimensions. And here is also kind of the conclusion or the interpretation of uh, François Cholet about large language models, which is very intriguing, uh, to be very honest, uh, which is large language models as program databases. Now, you might say, what does a database have to do with a large language model? And well, if you think uh, a large language model uh, has some kind of analogy to a database because it stores information 
And this information can be retrieved uh, via query, which we now we call prompt. Okay, that's the analogy. Okay, that's like storing data and retrieving it. Now, the major difference of this is that it's not just a database that retrieves the same data that you have inserted or, you know, in the first time, in the first place, but it also searches for data or retrieves data uh, that is interpolative and continuous. So it's a kind of a continuous database that allows you to uh, insert some, let's say, data points and retrieve not only the data points that you have inserted, but all the other data points that might have been in between. And that's, of course, the generative power of LLMs as a database, because it doesn't give you only what you inserted, but also something more, something that is an interpolation of what you have inserted. That's where the power is. Now, of course, many times these things can you know, don't make sense. And, and then we say, okay, the large language model is hallucinating. There are hallucinations. Remember this. We have covered this a number of times in previous episodes on the official website, datascienceathome.com. But essentially, that's, you know, a very nice explanation of what, uh, or interpretation of what the large language, a, large, a large language model could be, you know, analogous to a database uh, with this major difference. The capability of interpolating stuff, returning not just the data points that you have inserted, but also some kind of interpolation of those. The second major difference is that uh, a large language model doesn't just contain data. Uh, of course, it contains a lot of data, as we know, you know, billions and billions of parameters now, I think hundreds of billions, uh, probably G GPT-4, but it also contains um, a database of programs, you know, these are no longer functions. These are, you know, the analogy of programs. So imagine you have millions and millions of these programs and uh, that are embedded in the uh, this massive model called, called the large language model. And what you're doing with the prompt, in fact, is pointing to the most convenient program that can give you an output that is pertinent to your prompt. So the search is not only not only in the data space, but it's some kind of program space in which you have millions of programs and not just data. The programs are a way to interpolate data in different ways. And what you're doing with the prompt is just pointing to the most appropriate program that is solving your problem. And so when you say, uh, rewrite this poem uh, in the style of Shakespeare, and then you provide the poem, what you're basically doing with the rewrite this thing in the style of is using a program key that is pointing to a particular location in the program space of the large language model, while Shakespeare and, of course, the poem that you uh, input are indeed the program inputs. Um, and of course, the output, what you get, like the result of the, of the large language model, is the result of the program execution. So what happens is that you point to the program, you provide some arguments, some inputs, and you receive a, well, then the program executes and you receive an output. Pretty much the same way as we are used to, you know, give inputs to functions in a programming language and just wait for the result after compute. Now, I find this explanation uh, very uh, attractive. Of course, it's a, 
it's an interpretation of large language models. We can also think of large language models just as machines that um, generate the next word given a context that is the condition or statistical condition. I think that this is a, a much interesting one, a much more interesting one, uh, and also easier to explain to non-technical people, even though uh, there are many technicalities here that we are skipping, of course, and uh, with some of the references that we'll provide, in the show notes of this episode, I uh, hope they're gonna be they're going to be much more clear and definitely uh, worth a read for those, of course, who want to expand on the more technical details of all this. Um, in particular, the concept of embedding linear algebra and uh, anything that is related to uh, that amazing world of calculus. Now, there is one thing that, of course, Francois Cholet and I agree on, among the many other things that we already do, we, we, we already do agree, um, which is the fact that even though large language models seem to be, you know, sentient machines or something that understands, let's say, your prompt and uh, gently provides you with a result, um, well, this is not happening, okay? So, large language models do not understand the prompt that you're typing. Um, again, that prompt is a query, is a way to search in a program space as much as the query you are inserting in Google search, as similar as, as much as the query that you are providing to a database is in fact a key very complex one or relatively complex one that allows the database to search and retrieve the information that you are asking, but nobody's understanding nobody here. And so, of course, that's the uh, advice that uh, Francois Cholet is giving to all of us is uh, resisting the temptation of anthropomorphizing neural networks and in particular, large language models. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll speak with you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.